listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guest today is Henk Han Lukten, a German filmmaker who, together with his partners, is responsible for creating Babylon Berlin, a crime history drama screening on Netflix, which is set in the 1920s. Henk is an award-winning writer-director and forms part of a triangle for the creative minds behind Babylon Berlin, which focuses on political and social change during an important period in Berlin's history. Henk, welcome to Shoot It Now. Hi, Craig. I want to look at the decade from 2007 television through to 2017 with the first series of Babylon Berlin. Just how much did television change for you over this 10-year period? Well, television has changed immensely um, in these 10 years. To illustrate this the best, I could tell the origins of Babylon Berlin because uh, basically it's, it's based on, on the novels by Volker Kutscher, and he began to write his novels. I think the first one was published in 2005. When I uh, first read one of his novels, that was in 2008, I immediately had the idea to create a show that would take a crime story that would actually be set in the Weimar Republic because nobody has actually ever done that before. So I went to the production company X Films, which in the end ended up to produce Babylon Berlin. And I, I said, I suggested that to, to them. And they went like, no, we're not interested. I mean, what are you talking about? You're talking about like 90 minutes out of a, out of a novel? Uh, no, that's, that's too much. We're not going to do it. I said, no, no, no. What I mean is a real thing, you know, like a real television series, 12 parts or something. And they were like, are you going crazy? Are you crazy? I mean, the Americans can do that. They have the money for it. But the German television will never do that. So they just said no. And, uh, and some years passed through all these great shows, Sopranos, Mad Men, Breaking Bad. So many things have changed. And uh, after, you know, all these years, the German television landscape also changed so far that they were actually demanding us as filmmakers to come up with an idea. Don't you have any idea for a, for a really great, you know, long running show, many seasons? And then, I, you know, I just reminded them. I said, well, five years ago or even six years ago, I came up with this idea, you know, the novels of Volker Kutscher. Why don't we do that? And say, oh, that's a great idea. Let's try that. It often happens when the market changes that a project that was first declined ends up being picked up. But this was an incredible time when television did go through an enormous sea change. Basically, what, what actually happened was the whole market got international. Because before that, I mean, I can only uh, speak for Germany now. We were doing our films here. Of course, we were doing uh, feature films as well, and, and they were you know, shown and seen on, in f festivals. But in television, it was just for the domestic market. It was just for Germany. Whenever you had a bigger idea for this domestic market, they would always go like, oh, no, no, this is oh, too expensive. I mean, who's, who's going to watch that? I mean, you, you know, you have to do it abroad. So when Netflix got big and then after that, all the other streamers, of course, the whole consciousness of storytelling changed. That is basically the, the, the thing that, that has changed everything that you get out of your, in German, you say, your own soup. I, I don't think you can say that in English, but get out of your own, you know, bubble and think a little bigger. And this is what basically changed the things. For example, 
nobody might know, know that in New Zealand, but in Germany, we have a crime show called Tatort, which is running here since 1970. Can you imagine? I mean, there's been, you know, 50 years of this show and it's kind of a, you know, little quasi religious thing to watch that as a German on a Sunday evening. It's just a whodunit. But this has been going on for 50 years. So this is, uh, you know, part of a German culture. So whenever you came up with a with a crime story idea, they would go, they would go like, <laughs> for German television, they would go like, oh, no, 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 people are loving their tat art. You know, we have uh, 15 million people watching it every Sunday night. Why should we come up with another idea? I mean, this is how it was until I would say like 2005, six or seven then things started to change a little bit. But basically, it was, it was the international streamers that, that changed the, the way the executives in, in German television changed their mind. It comes down to a timing aspect. You've got Netflix and the idea of Babylon Berlin coming together from different directions and they don't realize they're going to intersect at some point. And taking from what you're saying, streaming services now, it has just opened up the international side of the productions. Where would you be if Netflix or the streamers did not end up coming to the party that they have? Well, I think as a filmmaker, and I can speak for uh, Achim von Boris and Tom Tikva, the other um, two writers, directors that I'm actually working on. I mean, I think we would have not gone into television. And then, of course, you can ask yourself, what is television nowadays? You know, it's like, uh, where's the big difference? I think we would have tried to make our feature feature films for cinema. The films or the stories we're interested in is um, for an audience that, you know, likes to be entertained in a, a juicy way. And but on the other hand, we like to entertain people in an intelligent way. So to make intelligent films for a broader audience would have not been as possible for television 10 years ago as it is now. And I think I heard you describe a television series as a novel and a novella or short story as a film, which is interesting because the length of an episode, especially with subscription-based models like Netflix, almost seems to be pushing the norms now into all sorts of different lengths for episodes. What was the thinking on delivering around lengths of episodes for Babylon Berlin? And in the future, will this possibly influence you in the way with regard to either shorter or longer episodes? That's a point that we're um, not very happy on uh, Babylon Berlin because we are forced to do 45 minutes per episode. And that's very strange because very many other series don't have this corset. And we have that because uh, it's, it's not a Netflix production. It's basically produced by the RD, which is the public broadcasting system in Germany and co-produced by Sky Germany. The Germans can't, can't see Babylon Berlin on Netflix. They see it on, on Sky and on the RID. And the public broadcasting system still insists on these 45 minutes, which is, in my opinion, really old-fashioned, to say it this way. Because, you know, if you, if you take, for example, a, a, like a Tolstoy novel, after a while, you, you find out when you read War and Peace, you find out, oh, that's strange. All, all the chapters are exactly the same length. I mean, you know, nobody would do that. Why, why should you do that? It all comes down to the viewer. And the viewer, I, in my opinion, should decide whether he, you know, reads another 
chapter of a book or watches another episode. This is how people watch television series nowadays anyways. So why should the producers tell the audience, okay, you have to sit here for another 45 minutes. They might turn it off after 10 minutes and then go on for the next day. I mean, it's like the way you read a book. I think that's, that's the future and that's how it should be. So having a look at Babylon Berlin, what sort of length would you like for the show? We're just uh, writing the uh, the fourth season now, and and uh, we're experiencing the same over and over again. We all always turn up with 60 pages for some reason in the, in the first and also in the second draft, and then we have to cut down, which is a good thing, I think, you know, because I just uh, heard many people say, oh, you have to be very happy that you're just you're forced to do this 45 minutes because then you you know you have to cut everything out that is not absolutely necessary to be there. But I think it just should vary. I mean, I think between 35 and, and 70 minutes uh, should be the uh, the episodes. But we always end up with, with 60. And then in the end, it might be a good idea that we're always forced to cut down. The people will not get bored. So let's talk about the writing process. Often writing is a lonely place when you are doing it by yourself and many writers can't or don't want to write with somebody else. In this situation of Babylon Berlin, you all had to be open to the process. There isn't a head writer or someone taking charge. So you have to, I guess, leave your egos behind perhaps and focus on the work. And I say that because all directors have some sort of an ego they have to to succeed to get a film completed and over the line so talk me through how the whole writing process ends up working so well amongst the three of you i think it's a it's a pretty special situation that we we have with babylon berlin because um you're completely right every every director and writer director especially have to have ego Tom came up with the idea very early on and he said, uh, well, we're going to do it all the three of us. And Nahim and I were going like, oh, okay, well, who's, who's writing which episode? And so he said, no, we're doing everything together. And after a while, we found out that it's three is a very good number because if you're there alone, you know how it is. You're, you're isolated, you're depressed, you can't talk to anybody. And if you do, everybody would go like, oh, please <laughs> tell me something else. When you're co-writing with one other person, so you have two, it's it's always antithesis and it takes a while until uh, you have a synthesis. And you always have, with two people, you always have to have somebody who's the boss in the end because otherwise you have a balance that will, you know, go on forever. With three, it's a very different situation because three is the smallest number of an audience. Because when we're sitting in a room, the three of us, and one has an idea and says, why don't we do it this way? Before you start to um, actually, you know, argument or, or speak for the idea, you can see in the expression of the faces if it's a good or a bad idea. It's like with an audience and go like, oh, yeah, it's the little instinct uh, that you have there. So, so three is, is the smallest uh, audience amount. And then the other thing is that um, three is also a very dynamic number because um, it's never equal. You know, it's like always... There's always somebody who has a very good day or somebody who has a bad day, but you can always, there's always an equilibrium. So it moves on. It's a very dynamic process. The way we write, actually, technically, we just do it this way. We have our little beat boards. We write it down, just the action. Charlotte meets Gary on full stop. 
40 of these um, little cards, which we put on the wall, that's per episode, about 30 to 40. And then we say, okay, you take the first 10 cards, you take the second, and you take the last 10 to 15 cards. And then, uh, and then we write that first draft, but, and, and then we give it to the next writer. So it goes around and around, and we don't even talk about the first draft. You just read it. For example, I got something from Tom, 15 pages. I just read them and go over them. You know, change whatever I want to. And then I give it to Achim and he does the same. We just stop discussing things because in the end, uh, it always comes down to, okay, so if you think you can do it better, then do it better. And and that's, that's uh, how we uh, are working now. So it's not even really counting how many drafts because you wouldn't know how many drafts, right? It's just going around in right. a circular motion or backwards and forwards. Somebody might be away for a day. So very easy to lose just how many times that has had treatment across it. Yeah, no, well, that's absolutely right. I think that the uh, first four episodes per season have many, many more drafts than the last episodes. It's the same like in the editing room. I don't know if, if you have experienced the same thing, but for me, with every single film I made, I've spent like 80% on the first 15 minutes. And then, you know, once you have them, everything is fine. So, so the first episodes are always the toughest, and the, and, and the very first episode is the toughest one always. Tell me about the way that you've shot the series, because you are all directors and people might think, oh, well, they shot an episode on their own each. But this was not the case, which I found really fascinating from a directing point of view, but rather you shot different locations within one episode. So you're all working on the one episode. Most directors would say, well, how does that even begin to work? So just explain a little bit more about how all three of you are able to work on a single episode. That works because we have written, everybody has written every scene. So everybody feels that this is his scene. In the end, when it comes down to uh, directing, I mean, you know, the, 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 the shooting schedule of Babylon Berlin is a nightmare. For the first ADs, it's just a nightmare because we have about 300 speaking parts here. And uh, to get all these actors on these days that we need them, it's just crazy. So it's not like uh, we sit down before shooting and go like, oh, I, I would like to shoot the Mocha FD and you could shoot, you know, Rad's home or something like that. No, it's, it's, uh, it's about always about the availability of the actors. So you end up with, you know, whatever. And we have three DOPs. That's also a, an interesting part of the whole thing. So um, we have three blocks, you know, um, always it's about two months. One, one starts, let's say Achim starts, then I come in and then Tom does the last block. So if you're the first one, you just start shooting, you know, and, and you go like, okay, the, the others will just have to follow. But in the end, you know, well, let's put it this way. Before we started, before we started the whole show, we were going like talking about concepts and uh, how should we do the lighting? How should we do the camera movement? How should we do the framing, the block, blah, blah, blah. We were sitting there without DOP, so six of us, and we we're talking like students, film students. And uh, but after a while, we found out. Well, listen, guys, we everybody here in this room has made some films. So why don't that, why don't we just do it the way we can do it best? 
and everybody's completely free to do whatever he wants to do. And this is how we actually did it. And the strange thing is, why does it come together? And, and, and we also edit it together in, you know, in the editing room. We all go through the scenes of, 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 of the other directors. The strange thing is, I, I think this is a concept that would not work in a, in a, on a different show. Because Babylon Berlin is a mosaic or a panoramic view of a city in a, in a certain time. So we have many, many different storylines. We have many, many different characters that are told uh, parallel. So you jump from one story to the other, you jump from one location to the other. This is what makes the whole thing pretty vivid, that there's always a different director coming in. Because imagine if you would split it up, for example, okay, you're the director in this season that does all the dancing scenes, for example. Then you would go there and say, okay, look, I've got a you know great bunch of dancing scenes. I've got 10 dancing scenes, uh, very different locations. One is in a big club, one is in a very small bar, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, after a while, you would yeah, just simply run out of ideas. <laughs> but in the way we are working, you, you see the rushes of one of the other directors and you go like, oh, I have... I, I thought it would be completely different, but I, I think I like it, or even sometimes I don't like it. But now it's my turn to shoot a dancing scene. So there's always kind of a dynamic process going on, like a positive rivalry, if you if you understand what I mean. So you, you never, you know, run out of ideas because you always see what the others are doing. And you go like, ah, okay, so we have this. We have a very, very slow one-shot scene, for example, so I'm not going to do another one-shot scene in this episode. So there's always a very fruitful, you know, taking and giving between the three of us. If we come back to the blocks, the three blocks, I just want to understand this correctly. When you say that one goes off and does the filming, their filming as a director, and then your turn will be second. So you are not filming three different parts all at the same time. They're running three blocks, as you said, yeah. and they're yeah. at different times. So the first block films, and then you're watching the rushes in the editing room before you have stepped up and done your bit on that episode right and then you get the sense of what that director has brought and as you say with the dancing scene you might have preconceived an, an idea on how you were going to shoot something and then you see something else that will inform you of how perhaps you want to take it in a different direction right and that's that keeps the whole thing uh, quite uh, lively also the uh, the actors tell us that it helps them to work this way. Because of course we don't shoot chronologically at all. You could also say, well, I mean, how does that work? You know, uh, one actor uh, shoots a scene that might be in, in episode 13, and then, and then the next day somebody comes that shoots many scenes from, from the beginning of the show. How does that all come together? Well, you know, it's like human beings are. It, it, it doesn't really come together. It's, it, because you're, one day you're like this, one day you're like that. This is, this is what keeps the whole thing alive. And, um, and what, what keeps the whole thing together is, for example, the costume department, the art direction, and, uh, and, and of course the actors, because they look the same. So the working with the actors and actresses is, well, let's put it this way. Um, let's say we have a mutual friend and we talk about this mutual friend. You would say, 
well, I think he's a very funny character. And I would say like, oh yeah, he's funny, but I don't really like his jokes. So we see different things in different persons. And this is how we treat our characters and uh, how we actually work with our actors. I have been aware for the last seven episodes that what I'm watching is three directors working very closely together, but independently of each other. It's almost like a dance. You're dancing between each other. Uh, let's just mm -hmm. come back to the editing room because I understand you all have your own editing suites. You do your cut, then it gets moved on to somebody else, and then they do their cut. Do you have actual editors? No, we have uh, three editors, great, absolutely fantastic editors, uh, Antje, Klaus, and Alex. But the way we, this, this actually works in, in the editing process is this. Um, so you have shot your scenes, which are completely out of chronological order. But you have the time after you have finished your directing block to sit down and cut, you know, edit these scenes that you have actually shot as a director. And then the episodes are put together, you know, because after, after a while, when you're the first one, you can just edit your scenes and then go on holiday or whatever, do whatever, because you have to wait until the others, until you have an episode. So if you have an episode, if we have an episode and each director has edited his material for the first time, then we split up the episodes. Then we would say, okay, you take episode one, I take two and Achim takes three, for example. And then you go through that it's exactly the same as in the screenwriting process. Then you pass it on to the next team of an editor and a director. And so we go over and over it again. And very often scenes move from one episode to the other. We, we do a lot of, uh, you know, rearranging, restructuring, uh, as I always imagine everybody does in the editing room. And then after a while, you come back to the uh, structure that you had in your script. But um, yeah, well, this is how it works. So, and, and, and I have to say, it's the toughest part. It's the toughest part of the editing process because that's the uh, time where there, there will be the situation that we actually really have to decide, this is how it's going to be and this is how it's going to stay forever. And, uh, and, and that's a moment that nobody really likes because then, you know, we had this, this funny situation when we were doing the uh, first season first uh, one and two, which we did uh, back to back, we knew that this is going to be the last day of editing Let's for, let's say, episode seven. And then somebody came up with a deck of cards. We used to play in the 70s with, with cars and you go like, okay, I have so and so many PS and what have you got? But this was a deck of cards uh, with uh, tyrants and dictators from, uh, from Hitler to Idi Amin to Stalin and uh, Bokassa, I don't know, you name it, they, uh, you, you got it. So the idea was that if you really, if, if everybody would say like, okay, this, this scene is, this is how it's going to be. And you really would say like, no, I know you're all going to hate me, but I'm, you know, throwing the tyrant card here. And, uh, and I want it differently. And so that was the idea. So we all sat there with our dictators and tyrants and mass murderers in our hands, you know, ready, <laughs> ready to push a card or th throw a card, but we never did. It's very strange. You just have to have your tyrant cards in the hand. But if you really go like, no, I'm going to butcher you all because I want it in my way. Nobody ever did. It's very, very strange. But it was good to have the card. <laughs> Which probably speaks to the fact of how the three of you work so creatively well together. Can you give us an idea, Hink, of how long a single episode would take on average to shoot? It would be about... 
11 shooting days. Yeah, that's the average that we have per episode. Some episodes have very complicated scenes and, and you even sometimes need two or three days for one scene. And that means that, that for other scenes, you have to be very, 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 very fast. For example, for the uh, season three, we had a crazy schedule. Sometimes we, we shot up to 10 and even up to 11 pages a day, which we, we swore never to do again uh, because that was really, really crazy. The average per episode is about 11 days. And what about the editing process? How long will it take you to edit a single episode? Well, that's hard because uh, we treat the whole thing as a as a film. We are always negotiating with uh, the uh, executives um, that we are not willing to deliver episode one before episode twelve, yeah, or sixteen, um, because we we really also in the editing process we treat it as a film. For example, the very first scene of Babylon in the um, the first episode, you have this hypnosis situation, and you go into the character, the main character's mind, Gerion Rath's mind. This was a scene that was not meant to be the first scene. It was the it was the last scene of episode sixteen, so the last scene of season two. And when we watched it, it was always like, well, it's it's good, but you know, the, the beginning with this train. Because the second uh, um, scene is a train that go through the night, and that there's a there's a burning tree falling on on the tracks. That was always the beginning. The the problem was that in that scene, which is a very good scene, but it's not a good opening scene because you don't know anybody in this scene, and for the audience, you sense that there is not one character in this scene that will be important throughout the whole show. So we had to find that out. We just found it out in the editing process. So we really had to come up with an idea. After a while, we said, okay, why, why don't we use the last scene and uh, recut it and uh, use it as an intro? So what we are doing is we're going through the whole thing over and over again. So I can't tell you really how long we take for an episode until it's finished. But in a good cut where you can see it, I would say we have about four weeks per episode. So looking at shooting an entire series, I understand that you shot both series one and two together. How many days did that take you to film both series? Oh, so the first, which we shot back to back one and season one and two was 16 episodes and we had uh, 200 uh, shooting days for that. Okay, that's a big shoot, 200 days for 16 episodes. And that comes out, as you mentioned, at around 11 to 12 days an episode. The 1920s world that you've managed to achieve from a production design point of view is amazing. The attention to detail is in every frame, meticulous in its aesthetic. So for Series 1, how much preparation to the detail did that take in pre-production in terms of the time that it took to plan everything out? This is also like a, a special way we are working with the production designer, Uli Hanisch. He starts very early on. So he starts um, during the writing process. He will read very early drafts. So he, he will very early on understand what the world will be in the, in the season. Because, for example, in season three, we go to the world of the stock market. So he knew, okay, where can I, you know, in Berlin, create a stock market? We're actually shooting the whole series in Berlin, which is unusual because normally you shoot period pieces nowadays uh, in Europe, in Prague or uh, in, in the Baltic states. But we wanted to shoot in Berlin. 
Berlin is not there anymore at all, as it was in the 1920s. Of course, it was devastated in the Second World War. So there is not a lot there anymore. So we have to recreate a whole world. And that's the, the world of Babylon Berlin. So we are not showing Berlin 1929 or 1931. We are showing Babylon Berlin, which is our version of, of a city that is not there anymore. So he starts very early on. It's the same with the music, by the way. Tom is the composer, but he's, he's, he's working together with uh, Johnny Climack. That also goes from a very early stage on. So we don't have used temp music at all, never. So we always have our own tracks, even if they change, but we have our own uh, themes, which is very, 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 very good because completely forbidden to use temp music, never do it. So it's the same with the production design. He comes in very early, he knows all the locations, and sometimes uh, he, he makes suggestions and says, listen, you know, you have this one scene that takes place in a huge bank. Why, why can't you think about something else? Because for one scene, I mean, we, I, we would spend a fortune. And so he's also part of the, the process there, the, the writing process. And then when, when we got actually go into pre-production, I would say from the first block, it's about five months. Yeah, four to five months that, uh, that Uli starts pre his preparation. And then, of course, he goes through until the end. The same, I think the costume department, Pierre-Yves Giraud, has about three months preparation time. And that's also crazy because we have so many, you know, extras there. I don't know how it's going to be in the Corona times, but uh, so far we have so many extras. And it's uh, and we, we actually went to every single, where you actually get the costumes in Europe. So that also takes a very long preparation time for Pierre-Yves and his team. Well, it's an incredible job what the production design team are doing, as well as the costumes, because as you mentioned, there's an incredible amount of people coming and going. The visual effects of creating Berlin in the 1920s, I imagine, is an incredibly time-consuming exercise. However, the level of detail within these shots is seamless, but it doesn't just happen by accident. So much of this has to be worked out in the early planning stages of the production uh, for the visual effects. We know that we can't use like um, millions of, of visual effect shots. So we have to think while we are writing what the big ones will be. For example, in the first season, it's uh, the shot of the Alexanderplatz, which is a very big square in, in Berlin that used to look very different from in the 20s from nowadays. And that's where, where the police station is, the Rote Burg. So we, we knew that in the very first episode, when we're going to show the world, we need a, a huge shot there. Of course, it was written in the in the in the script, and then very early on, we talked to our uh, visual effects supervisor and explained what we wanted. So he also had a you know long preparation time to do this, and this is how it works for for every season. We have like um, I don't know how many, let, let's say fifteen of these very big ones. Sometimes even full CGI, which we try not to use so much. For example, the whole plane sequence in episode 11 from the first season when they go to Russia, that's, that's a lot of full CGI. That has to be planned very, very, very early on. But on the other hand, the extensions of the uh, streets of the backlot, we have built a backlot, especially for Babylon Berlin in, in Babelsberg. The extensions of the streets, they can do that uh, after we have actually finished our editing. 
And sometimes, of course, they go like, if you cut 50 frames before, that would you know save us a lot of money. And sometimes we go and look at it again and say, okay, well, yeah, if you save the money here, we can use it somewhere else. So also there, it's always about dialogue. It's it's always about, the whole thing is about dialogue. Like the taking and giving I was telling you from the very early stages on of writing and also directing, this goes on with all the departments all the time. So many of the scenes that I've watched, I've had to go back and re-watch. Some shots look straightforward, but are tricky camera moves. For example, in Series 1, at the beginning of Episode 7, the scene starts with an overhead shot of a mailman on a bicycle delivering the mail. The camera follows the bicycle in a tracking shot to ground level, The mailman then stops at the letterbox and puts the paper between the gate, then rides off. Then we have a close-up shot of the shoes walking down the steps, tilting the camera up to see the actor as she opens the gate in front of her, which is where the camera has just traveled through. She picks up the milk bottles, end of scene. Hank, this is the sort of quality the show has. So many things that seemingly look simple enough are not that easy. The whole scene is only 29 seconds. So tell me the discussions leading up to filming the first series and how you decide to set the bar so high to achieve this type of excellent production quality. Well, I would say it's freedom. It's uh, it's it's just um, <clears throat> that everybody can do whatever he wants to do as long as he stays in his, his schedule. And sometimes these these uh, long traveling shots uh, save you a lot of time. Some shots that are even longer than the one that you've just described, and uh, sometimes it it gets born out of necessity um, because you look at your schedule and you go like, oh, how how can I do this? Okay, I might do a lot of blocking with the actor and and do it over and over again, and then shoot it. You just like okay, one or two takes, and that's it. It's just do whatever you want, but uh, you know, stay in your schedule. And uh, you know, what does the scene need? And this is something that uh, every director always can completely design on, on his own. <laughs> Again, it's the dialogue, because the dialogue also, when I watch the rushes of a, of a scene like that, I would go like, okay, so I have the, the next scene that actually follows this one. I wouldn't do another traveling shot, you know, it's like a, a, a tracking shot. You know, the whole thing, Craig, is a little bit like uh, this children's game where one paints a head and then you flip it over and the next one would go uh, with the throat and the next one with the stomach and so on. And then in the end, you, you look at the whole picture and, and you, have a, you have a funny you know, character. This is a little bit like Babylon Berlin works, but this is why it's so unpredictable. And this is you know, very underestimated. You have to be unpredictable in a, in a TV show, in a story, in a, in a novel. Whatever you, 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 your storytelling uh, is, you have to be unpredictable. If the audience knows what's go- going to come next, this is the definition of boredom. You know, the unpredictable thing that you're talking about there, it's unpredictable for you because you don't know what the other two have gone out and shot until you're sitting in front of a monitor watching the rushes. I mean, sure, you've all written the episode, but you don't know really how they're going to to shoot it. I just want to come back to the, the block. Just 
correct me if I'm wrong. So having the three blocks, if you are the first person that is out there shooting and then you mm-hmm. finish and then the second person goes out to shoot, you can at that point go to the edit room and start editing your scenes while the second person is filming. Is that right? Right. Correct. What is the third director doing? Pre-production mostly, preparing uh, his his block. Okay. And the roaring 1920s in Berlin clearly is subject matter that you have a passion for and is personal to you because I understand that you live in Berlin. Oh, yes. All three of us. Isn't it the case that when embarking on any project, if you can find something that is very personal to you, you are almost halfway there. So tell us about the genesis of the idea to create this 1920s era in Berlin and given the fact that it is so personal to the three of you. Well, um, all the three of us have uh, have a different um, you know, personal story behind it. I'll come back to mine, but in general, you know, when we started the whole project, uh, we were very astonished that there were so few films uh, set in that uh, Weimar period of Berlin in the 20s. There were some, but not from Germany, except for Fassbinder's Berlin Alexanderplatz, which is pretty dated, I have to admit, if you watch it today. Apart from that, there were many generations of film. And of course, there are some American movies like Cabaret, a fantastic film. And, and Cabaret lives off Liza Minnelli's face and Liza Minnelli's personality. They don't show a lot of the city there, but they have succeeded in giving you a sense of how it might have been in the uh, last days of the Weimar Republic. So we found out that there was just not enough shot there. That has a reason for Germany, because generations of storytellers were focusing on the barbarism of the Nazis that followed this period, uh, which is absolutely right and, and had to be like that because it was so monstrous that, you know, nobody wanted to look beyond that barrier. But we thought, okay, the, the time might have been right to give it a thought. How did all these people become Nazis or not? You know, they, they at a certain point, they still, they still were free to decide on what side they would go on. After a certain point, it was not possible anymore. But... Um, we are 29 up to 33, where at the time Babylon Berlin is set. This is the important and interesting question. On what side are they going to be on? And uh, some characters are really surprising us. And the other thing why it's so personal to me is that, I mean, Berlin is a very special city historical-wise because it has been, you know, there are so many historical fractures there in the in the 20th century. And for me, when, when I came to Berlin, I'm, I'm not born there, but I came there in the 80s and the wall was still there. And I, I was living in a very special situation where I had to, the privilege and also the burden to be able to cross the wall every day. And that was a very special situation, but it's too complicated to get into that now. But there was this wall in this city and, and the both parts were absolutely different. They had nothing in common. And so we had the communist East and, and the capitalist West. As a teenager, I saw all the, both of the worlds every day. But you could see, of course, that the city was built as one. And you could see the scars, you know, for example, the tracks in the street of the streetcars, you know, they, they were just going to the wall and they were, were just incredible scar of the, of the Berlin Wall in the middle of it. So um, then I discovered the literature of the 20s, where people were just, you know, 
seamlessly going from one part to the other, just taking a taxi from Alexanderplatz to Kurfürstendamm, no problem at all. And that, for me, as a, as, as a young teenager living in this special situation of the divided city, became uh, something like... Uh, the uh, Matrix. Um, yeah, right. That, you know, like the, the world that I would you know, like to live in. Ein Sehnsuchtsort, you would say that in Germany. In German. Um, so from that very early point on, the the whole world of the, uh, first the literature, then also the films of the 1920s, Fritz Lang, Murnau, Walter Ruttmann, I discovered all that. And you could always, it was so fascinating to see the city alive and without this, uh, you know, this scar in the middle of it. And that was always a place where I wanted to be and wanted to live, actually. So this for me, was a driving force to recreate this world. We're almost heading uh, the 10th year of, uh, of, of working on Babylon Berlin now. And it still gives me, you know, I'm, I'm completely satisfied in doing this because uh, it's, it's something that I always wanted to do, to recreate this very special period of time. The dance on the volcano, complete freedom, emancipation, freedom for, for women. And, you know, it was all there. Very vibrant, very free and open city. And uh, in, in our times, it's, it's a story that, that I always want to uh, keep on telling. I can't imagine, Hink, some of the older people of Berlin. What have they been saying to you as a result of being transported? You've taken them back to their youth. It's very interesting because um, for some reason, Babylon Berlin is appealing to very young audiences up to very old audiences. I would say from 15 to 95. And the older people, strangely enough, they are not nostalgic when they watch it. They mostly react, oh, you can see, and now it's all coming back. And that was always something that I was always uh, fascinated by. If you imagine when you were, um, let's say you were young, you were like 20 or something in, in, in the 1920s, let's say 1927, as a young woman, and you had a lot of freedom, you even had a job, you, you didn't have to be at home and take care of the kids and the husband, but you were a modern young woman. And then the war, uh, the war came, and then in the 50s, everything was, you know, back so much back in time. And I was always wondering, why did these people, especially women, but also, of course, men, did not get nostalgic about their, their youth, about the 20s? You, it, you can't find it anywhere. You don't find it in the memoirs. And that's a very, very strange thing. I think it has got to do with shame that, you know, everything that followed was so strong that you, you, you wouldn't even talk about your youth. Well, that was a time where everything was kind of OK for us. But it's a very strange phenomenon. I'd like to see Babylon Berlin on the big screen because of the production value and just purely because I love the show so much. And when I was watching it, I wondered if that could actually be a model that the cinema chains could look at. So you buy a series pass and every week you get to go to the cinema to watch the next episode because the production on the series is far better than most films that are playing in cinemas anyway. And cinemas have to sort of think outside the box at the moment. We're in a very tricky situation for cinemas, so why not? And I guess the question is, how much has Babylon Berlin been seen on the big screen in Germany? Well, we did one weekend um, for season one and two. 
as a promotion. And uh, it was pretty interesting how that turned out. Basically, it was it went very, very well in Berlin and it went very, very bad everywhere else in Germany. But the funny thing is, I think for the new season, season three or season four, if you repeat that, it will turn out much better everywhere because at that time when we did it, nobody knew the show. So nobody knew what was, you know, now we have, a, we have you know, fans following, uh, people that dress up like that, go to 20s parties and, and listen to uh, the songs of, of Babylon Berlin and all that. I might reckon that today with the new seasons, you could show it in the, in, 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 on the big screen. We have seen it on the big screen. I've seen uh, both uh, seasons completely in two days on a weekend and it's great i mean it's the best thing you can do because we have definitely thought about it always as a as an ongoing film like a feature film and uh, not something that you uh, watch on your phone which which is okay too i mean you know people watch babylon berlin on their phones but i mean why not it's better than not watch it at all so uh, but on the big screen you're absolutely right i've seen it twice and it's 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 the best Generally speaking, I, th I think that might be a model. That really might be a model also for the streaming services. I know that Netflix bought the Egyptian in LA, for example. Why did they do that? I mean, obviously to have their premieres there. And yeah, I mean, the, the, the production standards of, of, of high quality drama is so high. I don't see any distinction between this and, and, uh, and the movies. I agree 100% with you. Well, Henk, it's been a real pleasure finding out about you as a director, writer, and the creator of Babylon Berlin. And I'm looking forward to seeing the rest of the series, along with the fourth series, which you are writing, and that is coming up and something to look forward to. Just before we go, how has the coronavirus affected the show? Because series four, when do you hope to get that rolling in terms of the camera? We hope to um, start shooting in March or end of February, uh, beginning of March next year. It has affected us uh, at the moment, not so much, <laughs> unless, uh, you know, sometimes you write scenes where it's very crowded and people hug each other and all these kind of things. You can feel strange. But I mean, okay, we're in 1931 now. We hope to shoot it next next year. But of course, we have a lot of extras and that's the biggest problem. I mean, Germany is quite okay with the virus situation, but uh, of course you can't have uh, 300 extras at the moment. So we don't know how to cope with that because um, Berlin in the, in, the, in the 20s and 30s was a city where people did not have their own cars. So everybody was on the streets. It's always crowded. And this is what we have to achieve somehow. We don't know so far, but uh, apart from all this, we, are very, very, we have been very, very lucky that we have finished shooting in the whole editing process of the third season in 2019. Uh, so that we have this Corona year, and hopefully it's mostly this one to write. So it did not affect us so much uh, up to this point. Henk, it's been fascinating not only finding out about you as a filmmaker and the series which is currently streaming on Netflix, but also being reminded of Berlin in the 1980s and, of course, in the 1920s with the series itself. Once again, thanks for talking to us on Shoot It Now. Yeah, thank you very much, Craig. It's been a, a real pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.